Hello, everyone. Welcome. And we're happy to see everyone here. It is uh, Sunday, August 13th. Welcome to Second Sunday Readings. I'm very excited to see so many people who could theoretically otherwise be on a beach or at the pool on <laughs> such a beautiful day. Today, we have three really special poets to share. We've got Lisa Turner, aka Elizabeth Horner Turner, uh, Joanna Furman, and Francesca Bell. Um, I'm your host, Sean Killingsworth. So before we kind of get into the poetry, I wanted to ask the poets a question just to break the ice and to get the conversation going and to uh, help everyone feel a little more relaxed and get in the poetry mood. And so the question is, what are you reading? I'll start with, I'm going to pick on Joanna first. Okay, so I am reading the new Kim Hyasun, um, Phantom Pain Wings, which I can never remember the title of. And I, yeah. Oh, cool. What's this? What is it about? Well, it's a poetry book, but there's a lot of bird imagery. It seems like, you know, her work is always like kind of exploding the body, but this one feels sort of maybe less of that and a little bit more um, ethereal than her. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. Yeah. Sounds like a great yeah. recommendation. Um, and how about you, Francesca? What are you reading lately? Um, I am actually reading nonfiction, and I'm reading an amazing book called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. It's by Claire Detterer, and she grapples with sort of, it's a very modern um, thing that we're grappling with now, which is how do you square your love for art with the horribleness of a lot of artists? Oh, I want to read that. It's that really good. great. And, and she has a, there's a lot of, um, a lot in it about, really about feminism and about the difficulty of being a female who wants to be an artist or writer of any kind. Oh, that sounds it's, like it's an really... excellent book. Oh, cool. All right. Two for my list. Um, and how about you, Lisa? Um, I just started, I actually just got it in the mail. Um, it's a small book called Travesty Generator, and um, this author Lillian Yvonne Bertram just won a, um, a chapbook award from uh, Diagram New Michigan Press. And there's been a lot of kerfuffle about this actually, um, because she writes using AI, um, and she writes about um, AI and being. Uh, black and queer and how AI can be used to continue to oppress, um, especially BIPOC folks. Um, I was, my, a manuscript of mine was a finalist in the contest and I was really excited and it was really just fascinating to see how they felt about it. Um, I would, I really recommend it. I, I've just started it. <laughs> that sounds um, fascinating. So yeah, yeah, it's, I, I'm really excited to, to dive into this more, so I think I have a lot of reading to, I actually use AI for work. So that's really fascinating to me. Um, I think it's terrible. I've been doing a lot of experiments using AI for creative work. And I think it's pretty bad um, because I think what it does is it, it kind of, it takes an average, if you will, of different types of work from all over the internet, anything that's been fed into the, to the data bank and kind of, you know, makes it really bland, like makes it so, um, polished so much that there's nothing angular or interesting or quirky or personal. So it loses all of that, uh, the, what makes it a unique, you know, author's voice, um, right? And it becomes this kind of pasteurized amalgamation of language, um, which makes it great for marketing, <laughs> but not great for creative work. So that sounds like a good read too. Um, okay, well, and with no further ado, uh, thank you for your book recommendations and, and sharing what you're reading. Uh, I'd love to get started on some poetry. So up first to the mic is Lisa Turner, um, otherwise known as Elizabeth Horner Turner. Her work has been published in journals, including Cutbank, Fairytale Review, Gulf Coast, Lost Balloon, and Tramp Set. Her work has been selected for inclusion in Best Small Fictions and Wigleaf's Top 50 and Longlist. Her chapbook, The Tales of Flaxy Char, was published through Dancing Girl Press, and her current manuscript has been a finalist in several chapbook competitions. She lives in San Francisco. Thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited. I haven't done reading in a while, so I'm actually like pretty nervous. <laughs> I'm doing practicing. Um, so I thought I would start with uh, one from my my chapbook um, that's out uh, through Dancing Girl Press. It's They're very loose uh, sonnets. Um, and they're linked, they're about a, um, 
uh, a fairy who's coming off of drugs just and who just lost her mother. <laughs> it's hard to describe. So this is the first one uh, from the book. It's called Off the Record. We give a girl a guide. She'll fly away. We give her crooks, she thinks, to eat and spit out the goods. Nothing quiet in these notes. And opinions have angels, at least a sacred book. Flaxy Char began her begin long ago with her mother beneath the ancient oak trees. It was warm, it was, and she didn't wear her sweater. Even the shade was balmy. Lanterns in the branches, the perfect little girl story. Then fairies aren't some little girls, and they sure aren't all small. Flaxy knows she's blowsy. She sits in the tree to watch herself. She knows what she knew was over. No more mothers or myths to plead to. Instead, flooding mail, cover spreads, calla lilies. Um, the next piece, oh, thanks. <laughs> um, is called Flame Woman and the Hawk. And I have been tinkering and futzing around in this poem so much. Um, I love it, but I want to, this is this latest iteration I thought I would try out on you all. <laughs> so thank you in advance. Uh, it's called Flame Woman and the Hawk. Her feet burned this morning with small blue flames. She saw them when she woke because he'd pulled the blankets around himself again. These days, she was used to waking covered in feathers, but these flames were new. They danced if she wiggled her toes. She turned toward her husband, his mouth filling with each breath, briefly stopping, as though he took the time to kiss each one goodbye before letting them go. Over and over. By waking, his mouth was rancid, dark. She loved watching him sleep, imagining each breath's mossy exit as its last. But this morning, he didn't wake, and she had her feet to contend with. She flicked his shoulder and brought her finger to her mouth, nail stinging, his body frozen solid, his fists bluing and cold. The baby stirred in the next room, her heart quickened, fraught. She shoved her feet under his buttocks. The flames lapped his muscles, curled around the frame that had drawn her in like a spell. Nothing, not even a blister. Standing up this morning, her feet blazed with deep, hot base. She walked to her dresser to brush her hair, flames dancing like dominoes, feathers pouring off her body like leaves. With sewing scissors, she cut through the nightgown, big, jagged strokes, until it opened like lacy wings. As the baby giggled, she walked to him, tapping her fiery toes. Changing him, he peed again, urine hitting her foot with a sparkler effect. They gasped and giggled. He stuffed a feather in his mouth. She dressed the baby. Backing out the door, he grabbed at the flames, following. In the tree outside this morning was a red-tailed hawk. It blinked and tipped its head back and forth. Hello, she said. Do you like my flames? And brought a foot up to rest on the sill. The hawk inched closer, tapped a glass with its beak. The baby looked at the hawk looked at his father, pulled himself up. Dada, he said. The hawk hopped from one foot to the other. She nestled the baby in the icy crook of her husband's knees. This morning, she walked to the window, popped out the window screen, beckoned the hawk in. Baby looked, clapped happily. Her feet roared. They crackled and spit. The hawk ducked its glossy head to enter, and it was up floating on the icy air. It arched its massive wings and shot the talons down. The talons plunged into his chest with a crack this morning. The baby covered his ears and kept watch. Flames roared and climbed. Her feet, sorry, her face went hot, vision grainy, and her chest surged forward, breastbone cracking open, and the room filled with songs she thought she remembered. Baby hummed. The man's body turned to water. 
the hawk dipped its beak in his watery parts. This morning, she was awash in light and flame, her bones polished to a high sheen. She reached in her chest as her son sang along. She gleamed like a fire pole, her feet were calm as milk. Amen, she whispered, nightgown billowing out behind, lifting her high, then higher. The hawk drank the body. Thank you for listening to that iteration of it. <laughs> Um, this next one, I owe the title, uh, thank you to the Beastie Boys. <laughs> this is about a witch. I've got fairies, a woman covered in flames and feathers, witches. You can kind of sense where my, <laughs> where my writing tends to go. So this is She's Real Crafty. The hostess likes the word hostess, and she's a penchant for mess. Two cans of frosting later, she declares this year's cake a sliding success. In the back of the rooms, in the front of the barbecue crowd, a lone witch sips a drink of lime wishes. Too many people flirting and darting, she thinks, the cooler like a moth light. She knows this is not a party for bugs, not even a butterfly tattoo sexed on the small of a back. Desire like pollen rubs onto every body by, at least onto this witch known for large hats. A man on acid feels all these parts, he thinks. He knows he's sensing the witch's aura, longing, sparklers, gum. We're all a part of the ecological rim, he whispers to her. This man on acid wears loafers without socks. The witch wonders if he meant to be on drugs. At least he's gleeful, she thinks. He steps on a roach with a crack and smears. Disappointing. Always they disappoint. He's not the ecological rim, but the steel safe on the cliff. He nods at her. The witch swears out a spell. She just wants a pirate. A looker in the medieval sense. Bloodletting hooks and eyes, a two-tone Camaro. Is it really too much? She puts her hand on his arm. You need to clean up that mess. Thank you. <laughs> um, so this next one was published by an online magazine called The Daily Drunk. <laughs> they do a lot of pop culture. Um, and at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I decided what might get me through is watching all the Marvel stuff. So start to finish. Um, and I developed a lot of opinions and I wrote this poem. That's like a shame lust uh, about Tony Stark. <laughs> so this is called, I hate you, Tony Stark. Oh, Tony, it's true. I really do hate you. And I hate that I hate you this much. This many brainwaves should not be spent on you and your comic books and movies. I hate that you say funny things in Civil War about carbon dating Spider-Man. And I hate that you noticed how hot Marissa Tomei is as his aunt because, right? Give me a break. I hate how bad I want to visit this ridiculous Malibu movie compound the compound that has been rebuilt so many times after total devastation. And I hate that I know I would totally try to steal something to bring home with me when I went. I hate how much I wanna make smoothies with you in that fantastic smoothie maker in said ridiculous Malibu movie compound because what does it say about me that of all the things we could do together, I wanna drink algae, or seaweed or plankton crap smoothies with you and make fun of Jarvis. I hate how much I love how Robert Downey Jr. plays you and that it reminds me, well, I'm pretty sure that he got married in checkered vans, which I have mad respect for. And I hate how much I love that too. And that I only remembered it because of you, Tony Stark. I hate you even though clearly the most hateable Avenger is Captain America with his nationalistic costume 
and that shield, because who has a shield as a weapon? Least it's made of vibranium, but really Captain America has stored exactly 0% of my loins ever. With you though, Tony Stark, God damn it. I do get a little wet. I hate that I want you so hard, Tony Stark, with your color me bad facial hair situation and that metal man suit, your absolute lack of empathy and total reliance on brains. Well, really your own brain. Remember that time you and Dr. Banner started creating Ultron and then he got nervous about it because he doesn't completely suck, but you refused to acknowledge the legitimacy of his questioning? Tony frigging Stark. Even the name I would hate to call out in bed. So we're going to go back to like woodland creatures and fairies. <laughs> I think that's my only Marvel poem I've written ever. Um, so this next one is called The Woodsy Cleaning Lady. Um, it was published in Cut Bank a while ago. Um, and it's my husband's favorite. So The Woodsy Cleaning Lady. You'd be surprised at the accountability necessary for a forest cleaning crew. Janitorial services swears there are sneak observations via woodpeckers and such, but she's not sure. Each spring, she wraps up the previous year for review, hours assessed, her notes compared to reports from the rabbits and wolves. She clutches this year, covered in soft leather she tanned from the hide of a fox, the foxes who learned to offer one of their own to her, the usual, the sickly or dying or one of the elderly ready to go. They wanted to feed her and keep her alive. She, the burrow tender, the acorn washer, the tree bark polisher and spitshine queen. One of the wiser ones watched her press Play-Doh to her lips in the morning, freshly made and inhale its scent, nibble gently at the salty mess. Meanwhile, said fox shook his head in wonder at the stupid girl. She'll chap her skin that way. The foxes got together and began to leave a bloody corpse out on the log in front of her tidy hovel a few times a year. Bodies with badly lettered signs for you to eat or please no more Play-Doh. And she did eat and was extra careful cleaning the foxholes after that. She used only water and vinegar since bleach stained their coats. And sometimes she sang to the kits, don't stop believing or if you love someone. She started mixing her own hound away and sprayed the trees within a 10 yard radius. Now the Fox King is thinking of some kind of population upkeep award. But today she boarded the Interforest subway. Last year, all wrapped up, pulsing in her bag and she'll present it to the company, hoping her work in the woods been enough. I think that's my time. So um, I just want to say thank you so much. Thank that's you so time. much, Lisa. I appreciate all the beautiful poems and the imagery. Um, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I think I just accidentally hit myself, my unmute button quickly. I didn't at all. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was lovely. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate your sharing your words with us today. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Next up to the mic, we have Joanna Furman, who is an assistant teaching professor in creative writing at Rutgers University, which is my alma mater. Um, she's the author of six books of poetry, uh, the most recent of which is To a New Era. Her seventh book, Data Mind, is a collection of prose poems about the internet, which is forthcoming from uh, Curbstone Northwestern University Press uh, next year. She's a graduate of the University of Washington's MFA program, which awarded her the Academy of American Poets Prize and the Joan Grayson Award. Her poems have appeared in many journals and anthologies, including The Believer, Fence, Lit, which I worked on, uh, and Quarterly West. We're like twins, Joanna. <laughs> her poem Stagflation won a 2011 Pushcart Prize, and her poem Lavender was featured on the Slowdown po podcast. She also creates poetry videos that are on her own Vimeo site, and in literary journals, including, including Posit, Triquarterly, <clears throat> Moving Poems Journal, Fence Digital, and Requited. So Joanna, if you are ready, the spotlight is on you. Please step up to the mic. Hi, everyone. I set the timer just to be. Um, 
So I thought I would start by reading a kind of old poem because my nephew, um, who's in middle school, had to pick a poem for a project last week. And he picked this poem and I couldn't remember it, which is weird, but it's from a book in like 2009. So I just forgot it anyway. But I was like, oh, this poem isn't bad. So I thought I'd start by reading it. It's called How to Be Happy. Imagine yourself as a grandfather clock, the last left standing in the eye of the micro apocalypse. When everyone is sleeping, you flap. A wet gum wrapper or a phantom woolly mammoth. It would be as if every fruit bat understood the limit of light, felt the secret of career explosion squirreled away in salt and pepper shakers. When I was a gnat, this was easier to explain. When I was an ogre, no one asked me to file my taxes or rearrange my logical positivism into good or bad columns. Love, like any other time of day, expanded and doubled over. We poured science fiction themed operas out of every pore and squeezed our eyes until sweet wine flowed out of every broken faucet. So now I'll read some poems from my last book, um, which is called To a New Era. So um, this poem I wrote during the pandemic. So like a lot of men, my husband grew a giant beard during the pandemic. He like didn't have a beard at all. And then it was like a giant beard. And he's not Jewish. My mom was like, or my family was like, oh, well, now he looks like a rabbi. So I was like, all right. But um, anyway, um, eventually he cut the beard. But yeah, for a while, it was like really long. So this is sort of starts with that. It's called Whiskers. Bob's pandemic beard is the new member of our household. He pets it as if there were a kitten crawling across his chin. I say, how come you can have a beard cat, but you won't let me get a real cat? A beard cat is no use as a cat. It doesn't jump for the ragged tips of peacock feathers, doesn't wake me up with its wet nose, doesn't crawl on my chest and purr when I hear from my dad that my mom in the Florida hospital isn't getting better. The beard cat doesn't even meow or growl or pounce at crows at the window. As I pout, the beard cat jumps off Bob's face and swan dives into what I imagine is a moment in our post-COVID future. A silver lit evening where you're munching shrimp tacos under the multicolored garlands of a Mexican cafe in Mexico, perhaps, or where we are huddling with tourists, admiring Sophie Tauber Arps dancing Dada dolls at the new MoMA. As we worry about everything, all the past and future deaths ricocheting off the decapitated statues of disjointed piazzas, all the lost possibilities of lips grazing lips, the missed handshakes and hugs free falling into intergalactic tunnels. The beard cat is pirouetting on the rips in time between now and then. It weaves a flag out of the threads it has pulled from continuity, tries to surrender to a dragon with its flame blistering the stratosphere. Each night, the beard cat rips the walls off our bedroom, replacing them with a mass of undulating orange paws. Dear beard cat, Please forgive me for not loving you enough when all you were trying to do was mark time to provide a little salt and pepper colored hairtainment to a confined middle-aged couple. When you are finally ready to say goodbye, promise you'll allow me to stroke your pale tendrils one last time. Let me decorate your rough fur with marigolds. So this poem was, the poem that let me get a cat because like I was gonna show you <laughs> like Bob like he didn't want to get a cat 
because whatever he was a he was recovering from our last cat dying seven years before anyway so then i read the poem and then he felt guilty anyway so i was going to show you the cat here victor say hi to everyone i just had to give him treats to get him up here victor okay well show and tell's over <laughs> all right um Now he's like, where's my other next treat? <laughs> uh, love poem in a failed state. Some mornings when I am just a typo in pajamas and the rain is the thick black eyeliner around an unseen sun. The glimpse of your left eye opening under the blankets is enough of a welcome to flip the bird to despair, to allow myself to feel each one of my fingers wiggling itself awake. Um, so now I'm gonna read some newer poems. So I'll, I'm gonna read from the internet book that's coming out next year. Uh, we were talking about chat GPT, so maybe I'll start with that one. Ah. Victor, don't, okay, that's it for the treats. <laughs> All right, this is called Click Here to Learn. Uh-oh, now I, what did I, Bob, can you distract the cat? <laughs> All right, oh, yeah, okay, okay, it's, it's okay. All right, click here to learn more. I asked ChatGPT to give me a metaphor for my childhood trauma but it answered in a language only translatable by ghosts. When I instant messaged all the ghosts I knew, two of them were busy decorating their goth barbiecore airstream. One had gotten lost in a mega market's new walk-in fridge, and the other three had taken hallucinogenics made from rabbit poop and had yet to regain consciousness. So I opened my favorite coercive control expose message board. This time, instead of the usual blog links and inside jokes, I saw a video of myself and on it, the scars from when I was 10 and the substitute teacher hit me with an open bag of Funyuns. The screen was suddenly full of scars, not only scars, scars belonging to people I've never met and scars on the flesh of people I've only met in the internet speckled non-space. All scars, all scars, wiggling scars, popping and locking scars, right there in the redacted comments of our subreddit, a chorus line of boogieing scars cut the carpet into rugs. Years later, after I'd gotten married, landed my dream job, bought a house, earned a title in my duck pin league and learned to use the sous vide wand I had been given at my retirement party, I found that scar again. I'd been examining my body in preparation for my annual dermatology appointment, and there it was. I had almost forgotten about it, but when I saw it again, I was not surprised to see it sway. I, I forgot to say that all these poems from this collection are prose poems, so I'll just read a few, a couple more of those and then some newer poems. Um, this is called How It Started, How It's Going. I was reading a blog, trying to find a recipe for a lentil stew, but the story about the writer's stepdaughter's missing slipper went on for so long that by the time I arrived at the ingredient list, the building our apartment is in had been sold and resold and sold again. And even worse, our kitchen had been replaced with a digital oven that turned all ingredients into different flavors of miniature muffins, tofu bakata muffins, charcoal fondue muffins, hillbilly elegy muffins, death metal NFT muffins, raspberry nepo baby marble dildo muffins. One day I threw a muffin at the moon and to my surprise, the moon threw a muffin back. I told everyone in my activist Slack group that this was a new kind of radical action made more potent by its engagement in celestial intersectionality. Soon we were a whole movement of revolutionary bakers, a federation of militant muffin throwers designed to augment anti-capitalist baking with celestial praxis. 
Who could have known the muffins had other plans? So I think I'll read one more of these and some newer poems. Uh, where's the other poem I was going to read? Okay, so this is called, These Six Emojis Explain Your Life Right Now. I know how to wrap myself in other people's mishigas. All morning, I read about the woman from Louisiana who can't stop her son from hiding under the bed. A man in South Korea learning to fish in a hotel bathroom. A child across town who swallowed a whole marshmallow shaped like the Guggenheim. I take screenshots of these strangers' problems and blend them into a banana kale smoothie, drink it from a wine glass with my ass, oh sorry, with my naked ass deeply sunk in a silk pillow. Afterwards, my body is a pink cloud with winged sneakers. I hover above the data, rain down gossip on other people's pain. This is a kind of freedom, but also what? A kind of tragic happiness, like that cowboy who thinks he can lasso transcendence and tie it to his belt buckle? Or like that photo of the lake on fire your student posted as their grinder pick, or at least claimed he did? Like everything else, you'll never actually know. Um, so I'll read a couple of poems from this manuscript I'm working on, which is different. It's um, a lot of poems about my mom's death. Um, and, and telephone booths, but these are whatever. Um, so this is called 330 College Avenue. And there's some sections in it and I'll just snap my finger when we move to a new section. 330 College Avenue. After she dies, your mother moves back into your childhood home. Neither of you has lived there for 35 years but the birdhouse nightlight still lights up the dark of your childhood bedroom. And in the living room, the tiger flower sofa still blooms. Here, there is another you, still a young child. She dances alone to scratchy records while her parents dial the rotary phone or put away groceries upstairs. The woman who was once your mother is no longer your mother. Is there another mother who has always lived in this house? Has she always been there, digging holes for crocus bulbs or sorting papers at her desk in the den? The other mother, the one who never left your childhood home, was never your mother. The you who still lives there, the you who still sleeps with her binoculars under her pillow, she is not you. As your mother walks by the mirror in your childhood home, you see yourself within the gold frame. You are the age she was the minute before she died. Your glasses reflect clouds in the shape of a word. It's a language neither of you understand. In the sunlight on a cruise ship on the other side of the earth, a mother is wearing a locket she never found a picture to fill. Or she is sitting in the backyard of your childhood home smoking a cigarette, though when she was alive, she only smoked in the car in the garage with all the doors open. In kindergarten, you wrote a picture book called The Motherness of Mothers. At six years old, you didn't care that motherness was not a real word or a real world. Neither did your mother. So I'm going to end um, with a new poem that probably will still change a bit because I just wrote it and I haven't even gotten to workshop it yet. So <laughs> we'll just, I thought it'd be fun to read. It's called Kiss Me Santa. On a drive away from Miami, the city my mom and her family moved to when my mom, who was still decades away from being a mom, became sick, I see a cumulus Santa tableau, a long, thin cloud that looks exactly like Santa Claus on a sled. Even his reindeer are there in cloud form, mushing ahead. And so from the rental car window, I snap a cell picture of it. And at that moment, I can hear my now dead mom cackling at my excitement. Not very Jewish, she laughs at me. Not very Jewish, I keep hearing. 
Mom never liked going to synagogue or studying Torah or Talmud, but she enjoyed laughing when she heard of other Jewish families who had Christmas trees and whose kids believed in Santa. Like she'd joke about Jews with tattoos, even though she loved eating buttered lobster. Our people, she'd say, we don't do that, our people. My father was the one who tried to find our family a synagogue, somewhere that would be comfortable for us non-Hebrew speaking quasi-atheist Jews. He was the one who dragged us to the Zen Buddhist house for Rosh Hashanah, or the Havara in Albuquerque, where a white-robed rabbi chanted an Aramaic with a Navajo drum. Still, my father would have loved for us to have a Christmas tree like he had in his own childhood home, like all the other Jewish families he grew up with had in what was then called Midwood, but now has other fancier names like Kensington or Fisk Terrace. Secretly, I think mom might have loved Santa too. What's not to love about round bellies, long white beards, and endless plates of homemade cookies? Who doesn't love the laughter that follows one's own dumb joke? That laughter itself is very Jewish, isn't it? If Santa had visited us, I bet mom would have given him pieces of her famous overstuffed raisin walnut apricot jam rugula called mock strudel in those early 60s cookbooks. And I'm certain that she would have been awake when Santa arrived because 3 a.m., that was her favorite time to be alive. Her time away from me and dad and everyone who wanted her to listen to them or have her do stuff. When she was alone at 3 a.m. in the amber-stained reading glass lit half dark in her wood-paneled den in our Bronx split level, would mom have poured Santa a glass of Dr. Brown's diet cherry soda? Together, would they have relished the snap of a thick, sour dill? Thanks. Thank you so much. God, that uh, what a what a joy to listen to those memories that are not quite memories. What what a fun little journey we just went on. Thank you, Joanna. Um, my gosh, we have only one more poet today, uh, and her name is Francesca Bell. Uh, she's the author of Bright Stain which was a finalist for the Washington State Book Award and the Julie Suck Award, and What Small Sound, which is um, just came out, I believe, right? Uh, and she's also the translator of Max Cessner's Whoever Drowned Here. These are all from Red Hen Press. Jo uh, Francesca's work also appears in Body, L, Los Angeles Review of Books, New England Review, North American Review, Mid-American Review, and Rattle. She's the former poetry editor of River Sticks, the translation editor of the Los Angeles Review, and is the current poet laureate of Marin County. She lives with her family in Nevada. I'm gonna copy and paste this and put it in the chat so everyone can see it. Francesca, if you are ready, please ready. step up. Great, thank you, welcome. Okay, uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, coming out to, or well, I guess staying in to hear poetry. <laughs> I've been giving a lot of in-person readings. So thank you all for staying in to hear poetry. And thank you so much to Lisa and Joanna for the, those were just delightful poems. And thank you to Sean for having us. Um, so I'm going to be reading um, all poems from my new book, What Small Sound. It came out um, in May, and um, but I'm still just reading from, from it. I'm, I think maybe in a couple months I'll break free and we'll read some new work. Um, and today I'm going to read all poems that have to do with being a woman. And um, so I thought I'd start with something that's a little bit uh, more cheerful than some of the others. Tudor. I required finally a boy with 12 years of piano lessons singing in his hands and the girlfriend before me who taught him to play scales up and down her body. He reached casually between my legs without needing to look to place one practiced finger on my clitoris and press as if freeing a clear note from his piano. My body did the rest, bucking against him, then arching with an involuntary jubilant moan. I lay after, amazed and chagrined to think of pleasure, a spring coiled all that time in my body. And um, no, oh wait, 
as I was introducing the wrong poem. Um, so I was a massage therapist for about four and a half years when I was young, uh, starting when I was 20. And um, this is one of a couple of poems in the book about that experience. I leave my window open now to hear them. Nights, I hear barn owls calling, shrill as hunger stripped bare, and think of the onion farmer from east of the mountains, his broad, exhausted body on my massage table. The owl, he told me, screamed all winter from his barn rafters. He said the sound made the cold colder when he trudged from field to barn to house. After I touched all the places I was licensed to, bunched tender shoulders that crept toward his ears, beat up hands, leathery as a dog's paw pads, each buttock's lonely hillock giving gently beneath my forearms strokes. He sat up and asked if I'd have sex with him. He promised not to hurt me, to buy me dinner after, he said it plain, did not look away. But I was 20 and knew nothing of desolation or owls or wintering over onions or of a farmer pacing ugly acres as layer upon layer of stinging, weeping sweetness forms beneath the frozen solid ground. I forgot to say that um, that onions actually uh, winter over. I'm sorry, winter over. Um, they can be planted uh, in the fall and they stay out all winter. Then you can harvest them a little bit uh, earlier in the spring. Um, and this next poem is the obligatory abortion poem in a set about uh, poems about what it's like to be a woman. Right to life. It's like hiring a hitman. Pope Francis on abortion. I know what you are, little hitman, little cherub. Snuck up into me, swum past my barriers, implanting like a movie monster who takes a, a person hostage from the inside. You merely tap your unformed foot and my body bursts into symphony. Blood volume cranked dizzyingly up, Breasts swelling in fiery crescendo. Nausea slams me forward just as your father liked me, a body bent double to take him. I'm on my knees, little one, surrendered, vomit heaving out of me like prayers. I know, oh, I know the life you've come for. Um, so some of you may be lucky enough not to know uh, what an endometrial biopsy entails. Um, and so when you're getting an endometrial biopsy, a doctor has to go through your cervix and take a sample from uh, the inside of your uterus. And I, I got a poem out of it, though, and that makes it all worth it. Endometrial biopsy. All this time, the pain of your leaving lodged in my tissues like a landmine. Today, tripped by the doctor's needle, it imploded in concussive waves. Afterward, weeping, waiting to numb up in the humiliation of the stirrups, I remembered our trip to Planned Parenthood. Having not deflowered me, but rather opened me petal by petal to the goodness to come. You held my hand for the exam. When I was fully splayed, the doctor asked, did you want to see? And you took one look at the place where possibility would one day enter and reality come squalling out and fainted away. She rushed to bring you back. While I lay cranked wide on the table, the flushed blank face of my cervix staring. Smelling salts brought you right around, but you never really returned, enlisting a few weeks later, leaving me waiting 23 years to find what grief implanted in my body's hushed brooding corridors.
So this next poem, um, like many poems, is actually about what it says it's about, um, but um, and it's called Why I Don't Drink. And it is literally about why I don't drink, um, but I used as a scaffolding a little story about um, a prominent businessman from Seattle. Why I don't drink. Because drink is a man with eyes more ocean than sky, with wit, whose good humor surrounds him like fragrance, whose suits sit just right and don't wrinkle, who wants to pour himself into me and brings me books, the right books, and takes me to a hotel room above an exotic city and dresses me in silk just for the pleasure of sliding it down, who enters me like a flush of good fortune, who, it turns out, is married, and likes to hang me over his knees and smack me till welts rise up burning. And I spend a long time later bent funny before a mirror, straining to see the bruises on my backside, wondering if this was a price I wanted to pay. And by then, honey, it's too late. I have this fantasy that he'll, he'll someday listen to that poem and think, oh my God, maybe that's about me. <laughs> but the truth is most people that we write poems about never know. Um, so this next poem is about an experience I had when I was out running and I had a really close call uh, with a rapist. And, um, and it was along this beautiful ridge where I used to run every morning. And, um, and after I encountered him, um, that really, that it changed so much about my life forever, even though I was, you know, I ran away. I was quick enough. One day, my body. I'm tethered since the man on the ridge, limited to the path between the backyards and the cemetery. This body is a rope that swings me over want's abyss. I am weak, succulent, a magnet for men who hide in the woods. I knew that trail, like the ridges of my own body that rose up and changed everything. It was my ridge, the way once it was my body, when I was lanky, straight, and invisible, before possibility unleashed itself month by month inside me. One day, there was a stranger on the trail, as one day my body curved out of control, making men do things I regretted. What makes a man want a woman dead or pinned unmoving beneath him? It's bright here on the fire road between gardens and graves. Vultures perch on the chimneys, their wings spread to the new day. A deer's carcass rests in the creek beyond the chain link. I am safe here in the open among the already always deceased. Um, and I'm just gonna read a couple more poems and they are about aging as a woman, which I think is quite different from aging as a man. I think everyone can agree about that. Um, although the men are sort of catching up, um, I think a lot of vanity is creeping into men now, which is really sad. It, you know, it, it metastasizes <laughs> vanity. Um, and so some of you may not know the this poem, the title of it is Perimenopause. And, you know, perimenopause, of course, are those delightful 10 years before menopause when a woman's hormones wreak havoc with her life. It doesn't happen you know, this generously to all women, but for me, it was a solid 10 years. Perimenopause. Mornings now, I shave the dusky down mustache from my upper lip. My skin unused to the razor's blading glide, its scrape breaks open in tiny bumps. The way I'm casually broken open all the time lately my tears unchanneled and at the smallest provocation, making glistening runnels down cheeks that sprout a new meadow of man fuzz. Like the boys of my youth, I gangle, awkward, 
trip over my own altered self, my loins alight with a strange new life. Last week in the produce aisle, a man I've never been drawn to hugged me. His hands were warm the way a pilot light is warm, a staid flicker merely dependable in the dusty window of a hot water heater. But I danced to life like a kerosene slick touched by the sweet carelessness of a match and stood there helplessly burning. And so I'm gonna close with um, the last poem in the book. And um, and so many women, um, I think a few men, I think this sometimes happens to men too, but many women will um, recognize that, you know, you're minding your own business on Facebook and then all of a sudden, you know, a man slides into your DMs and he wants to tell you all about how beautiful you are and how lovely and how he loves all of your, your photographs um, and so on and so forth. And I wrote this poem in response to one of those men. And the thing that's really funny to me is that after it was published, I received an abject apology, but it was from a different man. <laughs> it wasn't from the man I wrote it about. Um, and I thought that was wonderful. Um, I, I graciously accepted the, the apology. <laughs> Manifest image. The man keeps telling me I'm beautiful. I still look young. He says it like I've asked for it, but I don't care for him or beauty. I am content to slip into old wrinkled plainness and walk on unimpeded. I was young once, my body stunned. My breasts were really something, but I was something else entirely something no one could see until now. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Francesca. What a great, what a great afternoon. So many different types of poetry, different subjects and different imagery. I really feel rich. So thanks to all of you, Lisa and Joanna, and of course, Francesca for joining Second Sunday today. Um, Thank you to our audience for spending time with us. Um, I always have such a great day when, when it's Second Sunday Day. Thanks to everybody again. Um, please come back next month for the next uh, episode, uh, so, so to speak. And um, that's all. So have a wonderful rest of your evening, everyone. And I hope to see you next time. Thank you so much.